We are going to continue our study of Mark. This is our 22nd installment, if you will, episode. And uh, I know we have some of our teens with us today, so welcome teens. Glad to have you with us also. So we'll be in Mark chapter 5, so if you want to open your Bible with me, Mark chapter 5. And we've been in this study now for some weeks, and just traveling through this wonderful gospel and seeing all the things and that Jesus did, that's what Mark focuses on, is action, uh, less teaching and more action, more of what Jesus did and uh, his miracles and his uh, actions that he took while on the earth. But uh, let's go ahead and pray to open, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this gospel, and thank you for inspiring John Mark to write it in the way that he did, in the style that he did. And uh, we're thankful for the, the, the scenes of Jesus' life while he lived on earth that help us understand him better, help us know you better, Father, and even to know ourselves better in light of all that. So please help us, Lord, as we grow in our faith, help us to learn and uh, be blessed from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a couple of the guys, or at least one of the guys, Nathaniel does have outlines if you didn't get one already, if you'd like to follow along with the outlines. I want to start off right away with verse number 21. So we're in Mark 5, starting at verse 21. It says this, uh, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. So this is giving us the scene. Remember, he's been over on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee at the Gadarenes where he casts a demon out of the man. The demons went into the pigs. And there was this, we spent two weeks covering that uh, account. And so now they remember they are the ones that asked him to leave. So we have this contrast. Mark likes to give contrast in his gospel. So we have this contrast. The people on the east side of the sea said, we don't want you here. We're worried, we're afraid of your power to cast out demons. We don't know what's going to happen next. And so the demoniac that's healed goes and proclaims the word as the, one of the first, if not the first missionary to the Gentiles. But Jesus um, follows what the people are, they're pressuring him to leave. And so he gets back in the boat with the disciples and comes back across. And so when he gets to the western side, back to Capernaum, now it's, it's a contrast. The people in Gadarene said, leave, please get out. And these people are welcoming him. In fact, they're so excited to see him that this multitude of people gathers around him. So the crowd is kind of crushing in and surrounding him. They're flocking to him. They're excited. They're glad to see him. Now, also in this passage that we're going to look at today, there's another Markin sandwich. And if you haven't been with us, a Markin sandwich, not a literal sandwich, but a literary device that Mark uses where he begins one account, but before he's done, he abruptly switches to a different account, and then when he's done with that one, he completes it, goes back and finishes the first. So you've got the, the first slice of bread, and the second slice is the, the first and last, and the middle is that the cheese in the middle. So um, we're going to see that today as the narrative unfolds. So we've divided up into three sections. If you're following along on the, on the outline, we have, first of all, a father's request. So he, he's get out, he gets out of the boat. <clears throat> Excuse me. The crowd is around him, and Mark tells us exactly what happens next. Verse 22, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet, 
and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So we have this request by the father. Now let's talk about Jairus' position, because I think that's important. I think that's another contrast that Mark's going to give us between Jairus and another individual that's going to come on the scene in the middle part of this uh, sandwich that we're looking at. So the synagogues were the local places of instruction and worship in ancient Jewish communities. Actually, they still have synagogues today, so not just ancient. Um, They are continuing with synagogue worship. At this time, in uh, first century Israel, synagogues were staffed by mainly two different individuals. They had a ruler and an attendant, and we read about them in different places, both in the Gospels and in Acts. But uh, the attendant was more responsible for the building itself, the contents of the building, but then there was also the ruler of the synagogue. And I just have some quotes here from uh, the pillar uh, commentary just to give us, I tried to reword, and I thought, why reword something it's written so well? So we just were quoting out of the pillar New Testament commentary, uh, James Edwards, that was the writer. He wrote, he writes, a ruler of the synagogue was the president or head of the local Jewish worshiping community, Rosh HaKnesset in Hebrew. That's what Jairus was, all right? He goes on to say that the ruler of the synagogue, accordingly, was not a worship leader or a professionally trained scribe or rabbi, but a lay member of a synagogue who was entrusted by the elders of the community with general oversight of the synagogue and orthodoxy of teaching. His responsibilities including building maintenance and security, procuring of the scrolls for scripture reading, and arranging of Sabbath worship by designating scripture readers, prayers, and preachers. So Jairus' job was the oversight of the synagogue and to create the order of service, if you will, and uh, select and request and make sure that everyone was lined up for the service. And we kind of do similar things here. We have an order of service. It's printed out um, for everyone that's involved, both uh, on stage and back at the booth. And it just shows the order and who's doing what. And um, there's, they're printed out. Some of them are up here uh, that we use. That was part of his job. So who's going to read, who's going to pray, and, and making sure he has qualified individuals that were doing the teaching on the Sabbath. So that was uh, his job. And so Jairus, you think he was an important guy in the Jewish community? Yeah, well-regarded, respected man, well-known man. Everyone in Capernaum probably knew Jairus. He was uh, very visible, out in front type of a guy, and very respectable, very respected. Okay, so we need to keep that in mind and take it with us as we move through the text here. Let's look at verse 22 again. So uh, Jairus, uh, behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, Jesus, he, Jairus, fell at Jesus' feet. So we see this man of great prestige and public importance, community importance, falling at Jesus' feet. So think of the posture of this man who everyone looked up to is now looking up to Jesus. It's a posture really of worship. It's a posture of honor 
to Jesus. Remember that the demoniac also fell at Jesus' feet. But really, it was the demons in him doing that. And why did they do that? Because they were worshiping Jesus? No. It's because they understood his position. They were paying homage to him as a, an authority, if you will, a ruler. I think Jairus' position here is more than that. And I think we'll see that as the text unfolds. So despite his high-class position in the community, he throws all of that aside. Does Jairus care what anybody thinks of him at this point? No. His reputation means nothing because he's so concerned for the life of his daughter. Luke tells us it was his only daughter. And so the, the, his heart is breaking and he's desperate. And it's amazing what people do when they're, when they're desperate. So he desperately begs for help at the feet of a carpenter from Nazareth. Think of the humility. All social classes have been cast aside. Any kind of caste system is, in his eyes, meaningless at this point because it's so important that Jesus come and heal his daughter. It is an, an act of faith, really. It's an act of humility. So the question comes up sometimes, and we can kind of think about this, was Jairus placing his faith in Jesus for salvation or simply believing by faith that Jesus could perform the healing? I really believe that based, as we get um, to the second slice of bread in the sandwich, uh, I think Jairus was at least in the beginning stages of faith, if not believing already. Remember, Jesus had a reputation in Capernaum. We're going to see that uh, shortly. And so it could have been that he had already placed his faith. But at least, I believe, he was at least beginning to see who Jesus really was. And this profession that he makes in verse 23, I think is part of the evidence. He begged him earnestly saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her uh, that she may be healed and she will live. So he uses this term of endearment, my little daughter, my little daughter. We find out at the end here that she was 12 years old. She really wasn't little anymore. She was getting older. She wasn't like she was just this little toddler anymore. But to him, and if you're a dad of a daughter like I am, they're always your little girl. They're always your little daughter. You see the love of this dad um, for, for her. This, she's so dear to his heart, and his heart is breaking. And as I stated before, it was his only daughter. I don't know if he had other children, but we know he had no other daughters. This was it. And she, he says, she lies at the point of death. Literally, she's on death's doorstep. Um, this tells us probably that doctors had already come and made this assessment. Unless Jairus was also a medical professional and a ruler of a synagogue, probably the doctors, which I doubt, probably the doctors had already come. They had assessed her and they had given this uh, diagnosis and there was no prognosis. There was no way for anything to be done. And I think probably he had possibly heard the dreaded words that no one wants to hear from the doctor about their loved one. There's nothing more we can do. And some of you have heard those words and it's so hard. But this father was not giving up uh, that easy. He, he says uh, to, her, to Jesus, lay your hands on her. 
lay your hands on her. That's specific. I want you to lay your hands on her because if you lay your hands on her, she will be healed. The doctors have been there. They've tried. They can do nothing. You're the only one. You lay your hands on her. And when that happens, she may be healed. She will live. There's no question in his mind. Total statement of faith. And I think the more he speaks, the more we see his faith. Was it faith unto eternal life? I, I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't seem to give us full disclosure of that, but I think at some point, here's my bottom line, I think we're going to see Jairus in heaven. That's my, that's my belief. Uh, just the certainty and the faith that he has here. So he's found his answer, okay? He, he's worried about his daughter's life, and he only needs Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. That's his point of view, and she'll be okay. She will live. So we get to the next verse, verse 24, and I love, I just love the abruptness, so Jesus went with him. There's no question. There's no like, well, I've got more important things to do. Well, my disciples, I've got to do this. I've got to be refreshed. He had just come from a long, I don't know how long it takes actually, but he had had the incident in Gadarenes. It must have been exhausting. Before that, the storm, I don't know how much rest Jesus had gotten from the time he left Capernaum at night, went through a storm. As soon as they stepped on the shore, the demoniac came. Mark is clear about that. If you read back through uh, where we were the last couple weeks. And then he gets back in the boat. Maybe he slept on the way over. It doesn't say there was another storm or anything. But in any case, he hasn't been in his own bed. He hasn't, he hasn't had probably very good rest. But this man comes to him in faith, so Jesus went with him just immediately. And a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now we start to see why Jesus was so strategic and this was actually done on purpose, as I think we're going to see. But remember what he, when he told the leper, when he healed him, don't tell anyone, go to the priest, follow the Mosaic law. There was a very complicated ritual with two mourning doves and scarlet thread and hyssop and all this stuff that he had to do. You can read about that in the Old Testament. And that's what he wanted him to do. But is that what the leper did? No. He went on and broadcasted everywhere. And, and it says, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a city or a town. So Jesus had to enter the cities covertly under the cover of darkness or in maybe disguise or something. I don't know what he did. And now we see why. If he enters any city openly, this is what's going to happen. But we're going to see this happen for a specific reason. Remember, remember, Jesus is always on mission, always on mission, never quitting. And he's always doing everything in obedience to the Father. So, as a point of application, I love how Jesus shows himself to be interruptible. Was he, now, and from the God point of view, he was planning to do this, but from the human point of view, is this what was supposed to, in the, maybe the disciples' minds even, happen. They're, they're being thronged. The synagogue ruler gets to Jesus. Change of direction. Interruption. Jesus shows himself to be interruptible, and I think that's a good example. Um, as we just pause and think about it for a moment, are we as willing to be interruptible? Are we as willing to be interrupted? 
because we all have busy agendas. Yes, sir. Yes, I am. Go right ahead. <laughs> Practice what you preach. <laughs> right, no conditions, right. 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 Yeah. Uh, if you couldn't hear John's, great point. Jairus had the conditions necessary. The conditions were what? Faith. That was it. And Jesus saw his heart, saw the faith. Let's go. I mean, it was like, lead the way. Show me where she is. I'm, I'm right behind you. Let's go to her. And again, being willing to put aside agendas and schedules and sometimes appointments. You know, all it takes is one phone call to throw off an entire day. Many of us have had this happen. But sometimes those interruptions are the main thing. And all the other stuff is just the details that we should be willing to walk away from. And this isn't a universal rule at all times. Sometimes we do have to stay focused. Sometimes, Jesus, sometimes people try to interrupt Jesus, but he said, no, I'm going to stay focused on what I know I'm supposed to do. So there's a call for wisdom and a call for discretion and balance. But I still think what a great example of someone that's willing to be interrupted. And um, remember back in Mark 138, uh, Jesus had done all these great things there. At, he had raised um, Peter's mother-in-law up from being really sick. And then it was evening, so Sabbath was over. Remember, the Jews' day went from evening to evening. And so at the evening, the Sabbath was over. So everyone came out, and they came to Peter's house, all these sick people, demon-possessed people. He'd been healing. He healed and healed and healed. And then um, finally, it got late enough, people left, and they went to sleep. And he gets up in the early morning, and he goes out to spend time with the Father. And the disciples come follow him and go, hey, we got another line of people. It's time to go back to Peter's house. We got work to do. And, and Jesus, this is his response. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach the gospel there also. Let us go. Let us go. That's his, that's his heartbeat. For this purpose I have come forth. So there's no hesitation when Jairus comes. He simply does this. So Jesus went with them in a great multitude followed and thronged. So remember, again, the crowds are always an issue in Mark. Mark highlights the crowds not so much as being opportunities for ministry, but he seems to focus on the crowds as being hindrances, if you will. Not that you can really hinder God. But remember, Jesus is living in a human body under human conditions. The only difference was that he was sinless. So there were things that he chose to work around, just like we have to work around. And I think he did that on purpose for a number of reasons, one of them being showing us an example of, of how uh, we're supposed to be living and, and ministering in our own lives. However, we're going to see that this multitude thronging him, that's crushing in on him, is going to bring about something amazing. So we come to the second um, line on our outline, a daughter's risk, a daughter's risk. So now we come abruptly, we come to the middle part of the sandwich. We've been focused on Jairus and his little daughter, his 12-year-old daughter, and Jesus going with him, and watch how Mark pivots, just like a 90-degree or a 180-degree, whatever you want to say, instant abrupt turn in verse 25. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. It's like, where is this coming from? We were on our way to Jairus' house, and now we're talking about this random woman, 
and talking about this flow of blood that she's had for 12 years, verse 26, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So we have this abrupt change of direction. It's almost shocking how Mark states this. We're on our way with Jairus, and boom, now a woman. Like, where did she come from? Well, she came from the crowd that was crushing in. Let's talk about this condition that she had. This woman's condition was nothing short of a living nightmare from a physical point of view. And we're going to see it affected her in every area of her life. The flow of blood was likely speaking of a chronic uterine bleeding that never ended. It could have been caused by a tumor internally or some other internal problem. We're not given that kind of information. But it was as if her cycle never stopped and it had been happening constantly for 12 years. Brutal. Now, the physical issues related to this, like anemia, low iron, other things, were bad enough by themselves. I mean, you think about the constant weakness, the pain, the suffering, but that was just the beginning of her suffering because of this issue. There were three other main factors besides the physical, and there could have been more than this, but these are three that I considered. First of all, the socio-religious aspect of her life, social slash religious. This bleeding made her ceremonially unclean according to Jewish law. Okay, Turn with me to Leviticus 15. We're going to see it. Leviticus 15 starting at verse, just a couple of verses there, 25 to 27. I can find it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, right before Numbers. Chapter 15. This is what bookmarks are for, I guess. I should probably think about using them. Verse 25, Leviticus 15, 25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days other than at the time of her customary impurity or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. 12 years. Keep that in mind. Verse 26. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. Whatever she sits on shall be unclean as the uncleanness of her impurity. Whoever touches those things shall be unclean. He shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Twelve years with no break. Unstopped. Twelve years. In this state of uncleanness, she would not have been permitted to socialize normally because anyone that touched her would be ceremonially unclean. She would have been prohibited from going into the synagogue and the temple because of her uncleanness. So no worship. 
No connection with community. That's another thing the synagogue was for. It was the main hub of the community. It was like the community center. On Sabbath, it was worship, but there was instruction. There were schools that went on in there. People gathered there socially. Not her, though. Not her. She would have been an outcast, much like a leper, actually. No one could be around her. That's a good question. What's she doing in the crowd? We're going to talk about that. So the socio-religious problem, marriage and family. This condition would have caused any men that married her to be continually unclean. And we're not told anything about her marriage. We're just knowing certain facts based on Mosaic law. So there was two options here. Either she was never able to marry up until this time, or if she, if 12 years ago she was married when this condition started, there's an extremely high chance that that man divorced her and was encouraged to do so by the rabbis because of her impurity. So she was either unable to marry or divorced, obviously no children. She would also have been prohibited from living in her father's home. An unmarried woman in Israel lived in her father's home until she was married. That's just how they did it. She couldn't go out on her own. There was no way for her to support herself, really. But with this condition, she would have been cast out of her father's home because of this. I know it just sounds just brutal and cruel, but it's just the way it was. Because of that ceremonial, remember, everything she touched or sat on became ceremonial and clean. So the parents are going, we can't have that in our house because we have to be able to go and worship and interact with people socially, so you can't be here. So you just think about the devastation of that. The third thing, not only socio-religious, marriage and family, what about her financial situation? It's equally as unbearable. No husband to take care of her needs, no contact with her parents, Maybe they provided her some funds somehow. It doesn't tell us, so we don't want to assume too much. But it says in in the verse here, she had spent all that she had. I don't think she had a regular income source from anyone because she spent everything that she had and was no better. Actually, she was now worse despite having spent, emptied her bank account, so to speak, to help fix this problem. They drained her bank account. They left her worse worse off, suffered many things from many physicians. If you've ever ever had a physical issue, and and it's frustrating sometimes to get in to what you consider a good doctor. Sometimes that's hard to find a doctor you like, right? And there can be a problem, and then you switch to a different doctor or a different provider, and and then you've got insurance you're dealing with. So we have... We have issues. We can relate to this really easily. And all their treatments did nothing to help her. In fact, they made the situation worse. They made the bleeding worse. So we have this woman in this horrible state, and our heart breaks for her, right? Think about this. What if that was you? Just heartbreaking, devastating. 
Let's go on. Verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd. Why was she in the crowd? This is why. This was her plan. That's right. She heard about Jesus. Simple, right? But how do you get to such a popular man? I'm unclean. I make everyone unclean. I've got to do this covertly. I know what I'll do. I'll sneak through the crowd. Maybe she had her head covering and hiding so no one would know it was her. Maybe no one would recognize me. I'll just crawl between the legs of the people because there's so many thronging him. Nobody's going to notice me. And I'll just reach out and touch the fringe of his garment. That way I don't touch him. So at the very least, I'm not making him totally unclean, even though that would make his garment unclean. I won't touch his skin. I'm just going to touch the fringe. I'm just going to touch the edge of his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. What a statement of faith. Just like Jairus. If you lay your hands on her, she will live. There's just no question. If I touch his clothes, I shall be made well. When she heard about Jesus, to Mike's point, well, what had she heard about Jesus? Oh, man, we got a whole list of stuff, and we're just in Mark. If we went to all the Gospels and chronologically laid them side by side, there'd be a lot more to say. Let's look at a few instances. Mark 134, he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons. Mark 141, then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him, said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. So the, the leper goes out and proclaims it freely. He's healed. Who do you think heard about it when the leper proclaimed it freely? This woman did. What else did she hear about Jesus? Mark 2, 11 and 12. I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. This happened in full view of everyone. Here was this paralyzed man let down through a roof by his friends. Jesus forgave his sins and, and healed him. And he stood up and walked and carried his bed out. Mark 3, 5, and when he looked around at them, being in anger, here we are in the synagogue, the hub of the community in Capernaum. Everyone saw this happen, being grieved at the hardness of their hearts, speaking of the, the Jewish leaders. He said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. What had she heard about Jesus? All of this and more. And if he has the power to do all of those things, surely he can heal me, and I don't even think he needs to touch me. This kind of power is supernatural. I just have to be in close proximity to him. I just have to touch the hem of his garment. He's healed leprosy. He's healed deformity. He's healed paralyzation. Surely he can heal my problem. For 12 years, this woman had been suffering, made an outcast, lost her money, lost her family, possibly lost her husband, or her chance at being married, all because she was unclean. No doubt that word just rang in her ears, constantly reminding her of this condition. I am unclean. Must have haunted her. And she must have been conditioned to constantly think of herself. I'm just unclean. I'm an outcast. And along comes Jesus. He's touching lepers. That's crazy. Nobody touches lepers. They don't want them. They cover their, they cover their mouth with their garments. They don't breathe the same air as a leper because they don't want leprosy. He's, t he's touching the downcast, the diseased. 
would he be willing to touch her? I don't, I think in her mind it was, I don't think he would be. I'm just too unclean. But I know that if I touch his garment. And here's another contrast. We have Jairus, honored, prestige in the community, a ruler, had authority over the synagogue. Everyone knew this man. He was lifted up in the people's eyes. And you have this unnamed woman. woman. And Mark hardly ever gives us any names of anyone. Surprising, he gives us Jairus' name. He just doesn't name her. We never will know her name until heaven, I think. She is the exact opposite of Jairus. She's completely dishonored in the community, an outcast of the community. No one wants to even know this woman. She's unclean. And you think about the emotion of this. She's seeing him following the synagogue ruler, knowing she doesn't have very many opportunities. And so she does everything she can do to get to Jesus. Oh, he's helping the synagogue ruler, the guy that everybody looks up to. Who am I? And, and, but she doesn't let that stop her. She continues and perseveres on and says, he won't even have to stop. He doesn't even have to know I'm here. I'm just going to touch his garment and recede back into the crowd, and he can go on his way, and nothing will be said, and nothing will be known. Well, that was everything going according to plan until what happens next, verse 29. Immediately, now she's touched the garment now, okay, the fringe. Immediately, there's our word in Mark. Constantly, immediately, 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 the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. 12 years and it's finally over. Oh, I just can't imagine the joy of her heart as she's reveling in this, but she can't say anything because she's trying to keep it quiet. She doesn't want anyone to know that she touched him. She doesn't want to create a disturbance because socially this will be really, really bad and he's a really important guy and he's helping another really important guy and I'm a nobody I just, she was just having to keep her joy in and like bottle it up and not let anyone know. And so she's sneaking back away. But what happens? And Jesus immediately, again, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? Wait a minute. This wasn't supposed to happen like this. This is not going according to plan. So once again, we see that Jesus is interruptible, don't we? He's on his way with Jairus, and he gets interrupted, just like he got interrupted to go with Jairus. Now, this verse brings up some interesting questions about Jesus himself. Why is Jesus, who is God, asking this question? Is it, doesn't, Jesus, doesn't God know everything, actual and possible, past, present, and future? So why is he asking, who touched my clothes? Well, first of all, the phrase, power had gone out of him, and the fact that he knew what had happened, that proves his deity. Because you might look at this and go, well, man, maybe we should start questioning Christ's deity here because he's asking a question that God should have known. Well, let's think about what just happened in the previous verses. Power went out from him, and he felt the power go out from him. Only God can do that right? So Mark has already established the deity of Christ 
through from chapter 1 till now. Secondly, we have to re- remember some things. Jesus was not yet in his glorified body. Yes, he was truly God, but remember, he allowed himself to live within certain limits according to his state of being truly man and living the true human experience. So if Jesus had asked this question as if he didn't know, when he did know, I think he would have been being disingenuous. And God is never disingenuous. He's never dishonest. But also, this question provided the opportunity for the woman to meet her healer. He was calling her out. Who touched my clothes? I forgot to put verse 31 up there. But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? (laughs) Like, Jesus, everyone is touching you. You have been being touched and brushed against and jostled this whole time. He was just weaving through this crowd of people clamoring and touching him and it was probably hot and it was, you know, if you had claustrophobia, this was not a good position to be in. He was surrounded by people constantly being touched and the disciples were like, how can you ask this question? Verse 32, and he looked around to see her who had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So Jesus, on his way to see Jairus' daughter, takes the time to stop and listen and understand this woman's story. Why why would he do this? Why take the time to listen to her tell the whole truth? I've been in this condition, and she had to say what it was, right? She couldn't make something up. She had to say, this has been my condition. And that was passed along eventually to John Mark, who wrote this down. She had to come totally clean. I had an impure bleeding for the last 12 years. She had to actually say that in front of all those people while looking at Jesus. And Jesus takes the time to stand there while Jairus his daughter is dying and listen to her tell her story. John? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so John's point was when you heal a leper, that's obvious. When you heal a blind person, a lame person, a paralyzed person, there's an external evidence of the healing. So she had to say this. There was no external evidence with her. So she had to say what it was, and and for the benefit of the crowd as well, knowing many of them possibly even knowing her condition. And so what a beautiful scene. This woman who's been outcast for 12 years, unclean, now she's healed. She comes before him fearing and trembling. This 
juxtaposition of emotion, the fear of, oh, I did something that, that I'm not really supposed to do socially, but I'm just also trembling in joy that I was healed. And it's this whole, all this mixture of, of emotion, knowing what was done for her, knowing that she had been healed, but she took it without asking and she did it in a way that was, in a, in a way of hiding. Would he be angry? Would she still be outcast because this important rabbi would cast her out for doing this? I can't imagine all the things that were going through her mind. But I love Jesus' response. He said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. What a relief now. What amazing joy. There was no anger. There was no condemnation. No more outcast. No more unclean. And I think it probably and even definitely had to happen this way. People had to know what had happened so that she could move on with her life. She's been healed. She took a risk. She took the leap of faith. Daughter, your faith has made you well. She had, and Jesus' term of endearment, remember Jairus calls his girl his little daughter. Jesus turns to her with that same affection and says, daughter. She had probably not been addressed that way for a long time. And Jesus, in his amazing compassion and love, calls her daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Wait, wasn't she already healed? Yes, but remember, all the parts of her life that this sickness affected, the socio-religious life, her financial life, marriage and family life, all of that was now redeemed. All of it. She could now be free to go back to her father's home. She could now be free to marry she could be free to go to the synagogue and the temple. She could be free to have children now. She could be free to have a normal life. All of it was healed. It was a whole life healing when that flow of blood was, was stopped by Jesus' words. Now, we got to be careful as we apply this event to our lives. Mike. Yes. Yes. Mike's question was, uh, since they're still in the law, do they have to go into the, does she have to go into the ritual? Yes, she would still be counted as unclean for another seven days. At the end of the seven days, she would take an animal or two animals, I don't remember. I read through that, though, and take them to the priest, and they would be sacrificed uh, as um, before the Lord to state the fact that she was now clean. So yes, there would be another seven days, and I think that's probably part of Jesus' statement here in verse 34 is keep doing what you're doing. You're on your way now. Finish your seven days. Take your animal to the priest. Follow through with the law. Yes, good point. I think those were the longest seven days of her life, though, because it's like I'm ready to get on with my life. Um, But what I started to say before, does this mean that everyone who prays for physical healing today 
gets healed like this? No, it doesn't. That's not the application here. That's not the lesson we're supposed to learn. What about people that have the same amount of faith as this woman? Don't they get healed every time they pray and ask for healing? No, they don't. We have to just wrestle with that truth. People can have the greatest faith in the world and pray for healing, and God doesn't grant it. He doesn't always heal our sicknesses, our physical sicknesses. He doesn't always do that. And so many of us have faced that and understand there's certain things that he chooses not to heal, chronic illness, disease, physical ailments, conditions that haunt and stay with that person their whole life on earth. But that's not the point of this. That's not the lesson to learn. The lesson to learn is that Jesus is God. He is who he said he was. And there is a sickness that he does always heal, which is our spiritual sickness. He always heals that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a certain fact. He always steps in and heals our sin problems. We're going to stop there. Next week, Lord willing, we'll jump into back to Jairus again. We're going to see the daughter's revival. Yes. Oh. True. True. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Barb's point was God rewards those who seek him. Is it always the reward that we ask for? No. It's not always that reward, but he does reward. And certainly um, our spiritual needs are met by him. Yes, sir. Real quick question. Um, When Jesus said, who touched me? Yes. Is it possible that that is in part a rhetorical question? Possibly. Right. Mark's question was, when he said, who touched me, could that have been possibly, at least partly, a rhetorical question? Yes, definitely. Yes. And I'm not going to question Jesus' uh, ability to know these things. Um, But yes, the question was a leading question because it opened the door for her to have to say the whole whole truth. As it says there in, in verse 33, she told him the whole truth. That needed to be said, and I think his question, who touched me, was the leading question that brought that out. Great questions. Thanks for... If for no other reason than out of respect for Jesus, he would have quieted down because they knew he right. wanted to hear what she said. Right, and, and yeah, so people would have respected Jesus enough probably by this time to hush, to move back. I'm sure they all moved back from her. So there she is on her knees in front of Jesus all alone, and has to tell him everything, and now everyone's getting to hear it, and everyone's seeing a woman that's been cleansed. So again, Jesus' mission is, he's always on mission, and he always obeys the Father, he always glorifies the Father by what he does, and certainly uh, this shows that. Father, thank you so much for your word, thank you for uh, these accounts. Lord, these are really historical they're true, they're historically accurate. Lord, these things actually happen in time, space, in the past. And you preserved them in your word. 
so that we might benefit from them today, and we thank you for that. And I just pray, Lord, that we would take the faith of Jairus and the faith of this unnamed woman and strive to live that kind of faith out this week. We pray that in Jesus' name.